You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. There's a church in the old city of Jerusalem called the Church of St. Anne's. Now, this church was built about a thousand years after the time of Jesus, and it is built on the site that is believed, at least by the Crusaders, to have been the childhood home of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so it's named after her mom, whose name, according to tradition, was Anne. Now, despite the fact that there is no verifiable biblical significance, really, to this particular site, Every year, hundreds, maybe even thousands of visitors stop and go inside of this particular church. Now, why is that the case? Well, part of the reason is that it sits in a very beautiful area within the old city, and it sits near the beginning of the Via Della Rosa, which is the path believed to have been walked by Jesus on the way to his crucifixion. But part of the reason why a lot of people stop in this church is because of its acoustics. It is actually incredible when you walk in there. Signs greet you as you enter the church that say silence, except if you're singing. And sure enough, groups regularly go in there and they sing. So when our group was there just this last week, we walked silently into that empty space. We stood on the front stairs and Ryan led us in singing, Come Thou Fount and Praise God from Whom All Blessings Flow. Now, we pretty much had the entire church to ourselves, and we sang a few verses, and it was, I mean, it sounded lovely, and we're not like a trained choir or anything, but as we left, many people were smiling among our group and excited just to have had that opportunity, but we walked out in silence. Well, as we were leaving to head to our next site, I noticed that the last person in our group stopped near the doorway of the church to talk to a young couple who had been watching us and listening to us sing. Later, she shared with all of us that the couple was from France and that the young woman was pregnant with their first child. And apparently, the young woman had become very emotional, which is why our team member had stopped to talk to her. She was crying and thanking us for saving our, or, or for sharing rather our beautiful songs. And as our team member recounted that moment later, she said, you know, it's such a reminder that sometimes these little things that we do, these things that we don't think anybody is watching or paying attention to, those little things can make a huge, huge difference in someone's life. Isn't that so true? It is often the little things, the little moments, perhaps the ones we don't think register or make any difference whatsoever, that can actually turn out to be really, really big in someone's life. Whether it's an ingredient, just a small ingredient to a recipe, or a small gift under a Christmas tree, or a small word of encouragement to someone, or maybe even a small song in a small church, it can make a big, big difference in a way that we might never imagine. We are in our last week of our Habits of Grace sermon series, and next week, we'll pivot back to the book of 1 Corinthians. From the very beginning of the sermon series, we've said that our habits, those little things that we do, that sometimes we don't even think about, 
Those little things shape and direct our lives in a variety of ways. And we said that Jesus himself had certain habits, things that he seemed to do all the time. And if we are going to be Jesus followers, then we ought to model our lives after his. If we have been saved by grace, then we should also be shaped by grace. And so week one, we talked about the habit of gathering together in weekly worship. Week two, we talked about the habit of daily engaging God's word. Week three, we talked about the habit of sharing our faith. And then last week, we recorded in the area of Qumran in Israel about the habit of serving, which, by the way, big shout out to our video folks who are often behind the cameras doing a number of things to try to make those videos work, like swatting flies and fanning the cameras to keep them from overheating. So thanks, guys, for doing that. But that was a bit of a debacle to record last week, but I hope that it connected with you in some way. So what then is our last habit of grace that we're going to talk about today? Well, it's just a little thing, except when it's actually huge. So today I want us to look at a text in Matthew chapter 3. Now, this is a section of scripture where Jesus was teaching the people in parables, telling these short little stories that have kind of this meaning that you have to really work to understand. Now, he had been surrounded by crowds that wanted to hear his teaching and maybe see him do something miraculous. And so when he spoke to them, he would share these stories. For some folks in the crowd, they would hear these stories and they would be just as confused as they were before hearing the story. In fact, for some of them, it would even kind of harden their hearts and distance them from the message of Jesus, thinking this guy is crazy or he doesn't even speak clearly. For other people, they would hear these stories and they become more interested in the things of Jesus. And they would ask deeper questions and keep pursuing to try to really understand what it was that he was teaching. So in the verses that we're going to read today, Jesus tells two very short and very similar parables back to back, which will ultimately lead us to our last habit of grace. So this is in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Today, we're going to look at these verses in three parts. Three parts. First, the little, little kingdom, the offer of bread, and the habit of the table. So let's start with the little kingdom. These parables begin with the line, the kingdom of heaven is like, which makes us ask the question, what's a kingdom? I mean, how how would you describe someone's kingdom? Well, on a very human level, every one of us has a kingdom or a queendom, a realm that is uniquely ours. It is the place where our choices determine what happens. The the realm of control and authority that most people recognize as ours. And for most humans, this starts pretty young with like the kingdom of our dinner plate, 
right? Like a lot of children at two decide, I can control what I eat and what I don't eat, and they will go to war over a strawberry or some broccoli or something like that with their parents because they want to control something like a little king or queen. And as you get older, this shifts a little bit. You start to be able to control a few more things, like certain toys that are mine, or my bedroom that becomes off limits to my siblings, or my style, or the way I want to wear my hair, or something like that. We tend to just think, well, this is just my style. And while that's true on some level, it's more than that. There's actually an issue of control here that each of us have this realm of authority that we want to control about ourselves. And as we age, our kingdoms grow. They become more connected to our homes or our jobs or even maybe our pets, that we are all kings and queens with different size realms. It's the arena where we have some modicum of control. So how does this relate to God and the kingdom of heaven? Because God is the rightful king of the universe, He is the creator and Lord of all, and yet since the beginning of time, people have been in rebellion against his rule and against his authority. Oh, we're fine with God in some way controlling some things, right? Like we blame God for the weather or certain disasters or even personal suffering, but none of us really on our own want God to tell us what to do. We want to wear our own crowns and to seek out our own glory. In a way, it's like humans have tried to secede from the rule of God. And yet, when Jesus started preaching, he had a fairly direct message. In Matthew 4, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, Jesus said, You must turn from building your own personal kingdom and recognize that there is a new king here, a true king that's here, one who ultimately rules over everything. And it's good news because the kingdom that he's bringing is the kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom that isn't about violence and power and wars and rebellion, but it's a kingdom where those that are blessed are those that are poor in spirit and those that are, that are mourning and that are meek. Those are actually the blessed ones. So turn from the old kingdoms and receive the good king who loves us so much that he will willingly lay down his life to save his subjects. This message of the kingdom is what Jesus taught and what he demonstrated everywhere he would go, he would bring life of the new kingdom with him. In verse 23 of Matthew 4, it says, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Many of the parables Jesus taught, he taught to tell and explain to people what the kingdom is like, like how it works, this realm where where God has this authority and he works and we all recognize it. What is that like? And here he says that the kingdom of heaven is something that appears to be little because it's kind of invisible at first, but eventually you see just how powerful it is as it begins to take hold. And he uses these two examples, like a mustard seed. A mustard seed is very, very small. I would have brought some with me today, except it's so small, you probably wouldn't have seen it very well on camera. They are about a millimeter in diameter, and it takes about 700 of them to equal a gram. And yet this very small seed 
is something that can grow relatively quickly and it can get up to like 12 feet tall. In fact, it gets big enough that birds can even nest in its branches. This tiny little thing that you cannot see grows very quickly and gets rather large. And the second example he uses is yeast in dough. A little bit of yeast hidden in flour can have a big impact. You can't see it at first, it's underneath. You can't just look at dough and go, oh, there's yeast in there. It's not until later when you see how the bread has been baked and how it's risen where it becomes obvious. So both of these are small things and yet it's kind of hidden at first, but eventually it becomes large and obvious and powerful in time. And Jesus taught saying, the kingdom of heaven may appear to be little, even invisible, but over time it will become obvious to everyone. Now, this isn't exactly what people were wanting to hear. In fact, they wanted Jesus to show up as this powerful king, Messiah, who's going to crush all opponents. I don't know if you've ever seen the original Thor movie from a few years back, but when Thor comes to earth in the movie, he comes with like a giant storm of lightning and dust and there's all these weird things happening on radar. And then he appears and he's all kind of hulking, rippling muscle and flowing blonde locks. And you know, when you look at him, that something big is a start to happen. This is a force to be reckoned with when you see Thor. And yet with Jesus, he came to earth as a baby, born to a poor family. He grew up in a nothing small village. He did just a common kind of blue collar job. When he began his ministry, he drew to himself like fishermen and he went to a wedding. And yes, there were some little miraculous things that seemed to be happening around him, but nothing like lightning bolts from his hands, crushing of the Romans, nothing that you would have expected if it was gonna be some big kingdom. And Jesus here says, listen, just because you don't see a full mustard plant doesn't mean that something isn't growing. Just because you don't see the yeast doesn't mean that the dough isn't rising. The kingdom is invisible and small even at first, and yet it is growing powerfully. Now, imagine that day in the crowd listening to Jesus. There was a couple, and, and let's imagine that the wife was really starting to understand, and she was sort of getting it, going, hmm, yeah, I think this might be right. And yet, let's imagine that her husband was very skeptical, and every so often he would kind of nudge her, and he'd say, who does this guy think he is? A kingdom of heaven? Like, show me something big, and then I might believe that he is this king, but he just seems like another teacher who's probably about to ask us for money or something. And imagine that she was believing Jesus, and so she kept following his ministry, and the husband from a distance also was sort of paying attention to what Jesus was doing. And they both see Jesus get crucified. Man, I, I just imagine in that moment that the man would be like, look, I told you, I'm glad I didn't believe because nobody is going to ever have heard of this so-called King Jesus in even a few months' time, much less years from now. I mean, a person like that could never have imagined how that little kingdom could change everything. Can you imagine somebody in a little Galilean village going, oh, there's a church on the other side of the world with hundreds and hundreds of thousand plus people in it that are following Jesus? Can you imagine trying to explain to them the reality of this church here? 
or the millions of churches that exist around the world. Could you imagine trying to explain to them how Rome would change in just a couple hundred years after this moment? They would have never imagined or been able to believe that the little kingdom could change everything like this. Now, as I was thinking that through, there's part of me, because of where we are, there's part of me that sometimes gets drawn into believing that, sure, the kingdom did grow rapidly for a time, but now the kingdom's shrinking. Like, it seems like more and more people are leaving the faith. And, you know, just kind of that discouraged thought. Like, is this little kingdom still getting larger? And so I looked up some stats on whether or not the church is growing. And here's just a few things I found from LifeWay research that was very encouraging to me. So, so one was this. The number of all religious people is growing faster than non-religious. This is throughout the world. In particular, the number of atheists is almost completely stagnant, and there are fewer atheists today than there were in 1970. Now, I would not have guessed that, but the kingdom is growing. Christianity is growing. There are almost 2.56 billion people who identify as Christian, and by 2050, that number is expected to top 3.3 billion people that would call themselves Christians. The places where Christianity is growing the fastest, and again, this is maybe why we don't feel this here all the time, but the places where it's growing the fastest is in Africa and Asia. In the year 2000, 660 million Christians called Africa and Asia home. This year, there's over a billion Christians that would call Africa in Asia, home. Christianity is also becoming less concentrated. In 1900, 95% of all Christians lived in majority Christian countries. Now, only about 50% of Christians live in majority Christian nations, which means that non-Christians are more likely to know a Christian now than they were even 100 years ago. Like, substantially more Christians are known now by non-Christians than before. The percentage of unevangelized people around the world continues to fall. In 1900, more than half of the world's population, 54.3%, was unevangelized. That has now fallen to about a quarter of the world's population. Almost 100 million Bibles will be printed this year, and there are almost 2 million Bibles in circulation around the world. What are all these stats saying? They're saying that the little kingdom is not so little. It appeared to be really hidden at first, but it is happening everywhere that God is doing something. His, Jesus' death and his resurrection brought real life and grew something tremendously powerful that that skeptic in that couple could not have believed. Even the gospel writers probably couldn't have imagined how things are now. For anyone who's listening to this that may not consider themselves to be a follower of Jesus, I just want to tell you that the kingdom is all around and it is at work. And following Jesus is not some white middle American thing at all. It is a global reality that is growing incredibly fast in places that are not middle America because the kingdom is like a seed. It is like yeast that you cannot see at first and then it starts to rapidly Grow. So if you're somebody who said, I'm not really a Jesus follower, I want you to ask, who is this Jesus that could be born in those circumstances and do ministry in that way and still change everything? So the first thing I want to talk about from this is just what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's little, but, but not really. Second thing I want us to see here is the offer of bread. So this is part two. 
the offer of bread. There's a strange little detail in the second of these two parables that I missed on my first few reads. And Jesus did something very subtle that maybe our ears missed as well, but was pretty obvious to their ears. And when we see what he's doing, he's connecting this not so little kingdom to these little acts of his followers that can also have a big impact, which will lead us to the habit. So what is this little detail? Well, it's in verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Did you catch it that time? No, that's, that's fine. If you didn't, I, I didn't either at first. But there's two little things about the amount of flour that should have made us go, hmm, what, what's going on here? One is just, well, how much is three measures, right? That should have made us think something. And then secondly is, have I ever seen three measures of flour anywhere else in the Bible? So let's start with how much this is. Satatria, three measures of flour. How much is this? Well, I found a bunch of different calculations out there uh, for how much this is exactly. And people don't agree to the exact amount, which in baking, you need to be very specific, but they don't agree exactly. But there's a range here that this is about 100 to 150 cups of flour. This is not a woman baking a loaf of bread. This is a woman baking loaves and loaves and loaves of bread. She's not just baking for her household. She is baking for a village. So the kingdom of God is like something so small that impacts an entire village of people. She is purposefully and generously sharing what she has with others around. So the first thing this amount should do is just surprise us by how much baking this is. But the second thing this amount should do is make us think of another Bible passage. If you're somebody who's studied the Old Testament before, maybe it came to mind quickly. But there is another biblical story that Jesus seems to be connecting this parable to. A biblical story that's kind of a classic about this guy named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And they are hanging out in their tent in the heat of the day. I'm imagining they pulled back one side to let some wind come in or whatever, just kind of sitting there trying to stay cool. When all of a sudden these three people appear before Abraham's eyes and immediately he does something that becomes an example for the rest of God's followers for all of time. What he does is he, he goes hurriedly towards them and begins to offer them rest and food and drink so they might refresh himself. And notice how much bread he asks his wife to make for these three strangers. This is what it says in Genesis 18, verse 6. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cake. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good, and he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. It says that they prepared a feast for them that included three seahs. This is just the Hebrew equivalent of that three portions of flour that we saw in the New Testament. It's the same exact amount. Sarah was directed to make a ton of bread, to make a village worth of bread for these three strangers. Why so much? And yet, this becomes an example of what it looks like to be truly hospitable in a climate that was hot and arid, where, where travelers might be exhausted and even endangered. Abraham and Sarah become the models for what it looks like to show hospitality to other people. 
The plight of aliens was desperate. This is from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary. They lacked membership in the community, be it tribe, city-state, or nation. As an alienated person, the traveler often, often needed immediate food and longing. Widows, orphans, the poor, or sojourners from other lands lacked the familial or community status that provided a landed inheritance, the means of making a living and protection. In the ancient world, the practice of hospitality meant graciously receiving an alienated person into one's land, home, or community, and providing directly for that person's needs. In the offer of bread and other refreshments, what Abraham was doing in Sarah was becoming a tremendously generous example of hospitality. So much so that years later, the writer of Hebrews would say, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Brotherly love and hospitality, Philadelphia and Philozenius, is like generous, affectionate love for a brother or sister and generous, affectionate love for a stranger or hospitality. This writer was talking to a church that was under fire, that was being persecuted. And one of his main encouragements was show love to each other. Okay, that makes sense. And show hospitality. That's how big of a deal it was to this writer of Hebrews. Similarly, in 1 Peter, Peter is writing to a church that is suffering tremendously. And he says, the end of the world is upon us, essentially. He says, everything is about to end. And then he gives these instructions. Now, what kinds of things would you put in your top three of things to remember when the world is ending? So here's, here's what he says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Okay. I'm tracking. I mean, prayer seems like it would be an important thing to be doing, especially as the world ends. What's next? Okay. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Perfect. Like, don't get petty. Don't get self-centered. Love each other. The end of all things is at hand. So far, I'm tracking. Number one and two, they make sense. What's number three? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Would hospitality even make your top 30 list of things that you should be doing if the end of the world was at hand? And yet, it's number three of the things that he says. This is why I think Jesus baked it into his parable about the kingdom. Baked into, I know, I know, it's corny, but... Pretty good, right? Baked it into that parable because the kingdom is like this little thing that becomes a big deal. The kingdom is like these little people that show a little bit of hospitality and it's actually kind of a really big deal. The woman is mixing dough just like Sarah mixed through uh, dough millennia ago, preparing a feast for people she didn't even know. So yes, Jesus affirms the kingdom of heaven is growing, often in surprising ways, but he's also pointing out that this growing kingdom he has begun ushering in is a kingdom characterized by the radical hospitality of Abraham and Sarah, a hospitality that puts aside what we are doing to offer the best help we can give when it's needed. The kingdom of heaven is like somebody offering a little hospitality, and it turns out to be a big big deal. Which brings us to part three. Part three. Part three, the habit of our table. 
about a week ago, I sat in a Bedouin tent with other members of our team, and we were challenged to consider how hospitable we actually are. We looked at this text in Genesis 18 with Abraham and Sarah, and we were asked to think about, are we hospitable or not? What is the habit of our table? Are we regularly inviting people into our lives, into our homes? Do we make a habit of seeking to care for others, or do we make a habit of making excuses for why we can't be hospitable and care for others? And the truth is, habits come more red, or excuses rather come more readily to my mind than hospitality. Author Rosaria Butterfield wrote, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and she says, Who else but Bible-believing Christians can make redemptive sense of a tragedy? Who can see hope in the promises of God when the real lived circumstances look dire? Who else knows that the sin that will undo me is my own, not my neighbor's, no matter how big my neighbor's sin might appear? And where else but a Christian home should neighbors go in times of unprecedented crisis? Where else? Is it safe to be vulnerable, scared, lost, and hopeless? Such hospitality sees our homes not as our own, but as God's tools for the furtherance of his kingdom as we welcome those who look, think, believe, and act differently from us into our everyday, sometimes messy lives, helping them to see what true Christian faith truly looks like. The kingdom of heaven seems to be like people who show hospitality. When we truly believe that our good shepherd has met all of our needs and prepared a table for us, we can be freed up to then prepare tables for others, to share with others out of the overflow of what he's given us. So what is our habit of our table? Are we in the habit of simply making excuses? I mentioned that excuses come readily to mind for why I'm not more hospitable. Some of those excuses include things like, I'm busy. Or what if it's awkward? Like, right, because that could happen. Or what if it's expensive? Like eggs cost a million dollars now, right? Like, or I mean, what if I'm not feeling? Like there's a million sort of excuses that come to mind for why I'm not as hospitable as I ought to be. I was discussing this with Pat as we were thinking this through together, and he pointed out this, this thing which I had never noticed before. And it's that this impromptu feast that Abraham and Sarah threw follows immediately after something that you would think might give Abraham an excuse to not be particularly hospitable. So there's no chapter breaks in the original Genesis scroll. So what comes right before these verses? Well, this is Genesis 17, 26 and 27. This is literally right before he's waiting in the, the, the doorway of his tent and he hops up and he goes to help these guys out. This is what it says right before that. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So immediately following, or immediately preceding an impromptu feast for three strangers, Abraham was circumcised. If ever there was an excuse to not be particularly generous and hospitable, he had it. I mean, if I get the sniffles, I want to put on a massive hoodie and ignore everyone in the world and tell them to leave me alone. He very well could have been still recovering from this surgery, and yet he hops up and begins to show tremendous hospitality to these strangers. The kingdom of God might seem invisible and small, 
but it actually has this huge impact. The hospitality that we show might seem like no one is watching or listening or even cares, and yet it can become this tremendously powerful example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. I, I read a Gospel Coalition article by author, Bible teacher named Jen Wilkin, where she said in essence that part of the reason we, we aren't more hospitable is that we confuse hospitality with entertaining. And the difference in her words is that entertainment seeks to impress, but hospitality seeks to bless. And I think that's exactly right. That when we're worried about impressing people, well, then our houses have to be perfect and the meal has to be perfect and the conversation has to be perfect and everything has to be just so. But when we're seeking to bless other people, it gives us more freedom to be able to, to, to reach out to them and show them more what it means to follow Jesus. Like when we open up our homes to the small group, even when we haven't had time to give it a old deep cleaning first, we're showing hospitality. When we drop off groceries for a neighbor who just had a baby, we are showing hospitality. When we open our homes to host an international student, even when we have lots of things going on, we are showing hospitality. When we invite somebody who's away from their family to join our holiday party, and it could be awkward, we are showing hospitality. When we hear that somebody from out of town is at the hospital for a few weeks with a family member who's in treatment, and we offer to bring them meals and to get them out of the hospital to go to lunch, we aren't entertaining. We are showing hospitality, doing something small that God can use in a big, big way. So what is the habit of our table? How much margin have we created in our schedules so that we can invite people into our lives and into our homes? How are we praying and planning that God would make us the type of people that shows real hospitable love to our sisters, our brothers, our neighbors, and even strangers in a legitimate way? One of our team members in Israel had a bit of an accident where he ended up in the hospital. And in fact, he couldn't go back with the rest of the team until he got medical clearance. And while we're very thankful that God is, is moving him in a good direction uh, physically, we're also, I'm incredibly thankful that there was a friend of a friend who lived in Tel Aviv who offered just to open up their home and to take him in for as long as it takes till he can get that medical clearance. They demonstrated the kingdom in their hospitality. You know, when people travel to Israel, they use the language of visiting the Holy Land, this place that is set apart by God where his presence uniquely dwells. Well, what we find as we study God's word is that we, the followers of Jesus, are actually the Holy Land. We are set apart and God's presence dwells in us so that when we invite people into our homes, they don't need to go to Israel to meet Jesus and see something about this not-so-little kingdom. They just need to come to our tables. So what is our habit of hospitality? May God take our little bits of hospitality and do something big with it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hospitality that's been shown to me and to my family. And I would ask as we consider your kingdom, and we're always thinking of these big things we can do, that we would look a little bit sideways, a little lower, so to speak, and just say, how can I serve my neighbor? How can I open up my home to others? God, you've shown us such generosity and blessing. 
You have served us in so many ways. May we overflow that to all that are around us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.